This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Good morning. Well, hopefully we haven't quite reached media saturation point on the Olympics and you're ready for the talking point take on events. This morning, I'll be talking to a sports economist about the disastrous economics of hosting the Games and why a permanent home should be found for them. We'll be talking to an American lawyer with 20 years experience of South American justice and ask if we can be confident in the Brazilian system. And the Daily Mail's John Lee is in studio to discuss the domestic impact of the ticket scandal. And we'll have the latest from Rio with David Walsh. Where are Kevin? Kevin Mallon and Pat Hickey now and what's going to happen next. Uh, David Walsh, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, David, there are lots of lurid descriptions in the papers this morning of Bangu Prison where Pat Hickey and Kevin Mallon are both being detained. Do you know if their families or lawyers have been able to find out how they are and if the conditions are as grim as we've been led to believe? No, I I do not know that. Um, what I do know is that, um, yes, as, as you know, as has been reported, it's not the most pleasant place um, at that prison, and you wouldn't expect it to because um, Brazil has got a really high um, prison population. They say that, that, that pretty much all prisons in Brazil are, are overcrowded to the extent of maybe 30% more people than the capacity should allow. So it's not a place that you really want to be. And is there any sense yet of a time frame for this whole procedure? Because so far it looks like things are moving quite slowly. Could they be there for quite some time? Um, I think the best um, you know, guide as to what may happen is if we look at what happened at the FIFA World Cup, because we had a ticket scandal there and we had people imprisoned. And what happened after the World Cup ended was that the charges were were dropped against the people and they were allowed to return home. Um, I'm not saying that will happen in this case. Um, And the charges, you know, on paper at least do look, you know, pretty serious. But on the other hand, um, I think people familiar with the kind of police system in Brazil have seen plenty of instances where an investigation is started by, you know, officers at a certain level, and then people at a higher level come along who maybe have been, you know, affected by, you know, have been given instructions by people in higher places, and suddenly the case gets dropped. I mean, that happens here quite a lot. And I spoke to um, to Brazilians pretty familiar with the system, and their view was that, this would be this would be something that could just disappear after the games uh, have ended. Yeah, but then I was looking that um, about the Brazilian politician and former World Cup winner Romário de Souza Faria, and he's been campaigning on this issue, and indeed had named Pat Hickey in speeches in the Brazilian Parliament. Do you think perhaps that kind of political pressure might make it more difficult? for the scenario, as you suggest, to unfold? Yes, yes, it may well, it may well, it may well, um, you know, make it more difficult for that kind of political solution. But the people, you know, in charge of the International Olympic Committee are pretty powerful people, although you would have to wonder about their standing, you know, in Brazil at this time, because the Rio de Janeiro Games, they haven't been, you know, an entirely kind of 
um, joyous experience for the Brazilian people, especially the people in Rio de Janeiro. They've, they've witnessed, you know, this huge expenditure on a kind of a sporting festival that lasts two weeks. And the legacy for them is going to be, you know, huge expense, money that has to be paid back, higher, higher charges for, you know, basic services like, you know, power and, and, and transport and stuff like that. And they're worried about that. So they, there isn't a kind of, an, you know, a lot of good feeling towards the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro that I've been able to see. So that might weigh against uh, the kind of solution that you would normally expect, i.e. the IOC would try to kind of help out one of its own. Um, but it will certainly be very interesting to see. And I don't think anybody can speak with any great certainty. Now, I saw that Broadsheet.ie republished a column you had written almost 20 years ago um, about what you saw as irregularities um, regarding Pat Hickey and the um, Olympic Council in Ireland. So, And of course, you have an amazing reputation for you know, seeking out corruption and Lance Armstrong and all of that. You were on that case. Even if Pat Hickey and Kevin Mallon are returned home and the charges are dropped, you know, life is going to be quite different for the Olympic Council back here in Ireland. How do you, what do you think the consequences of the whole affair will be? Well, what I would hope is that um, if, Pat, if Pat Hickey is, is, you know, does end up, you know, getting home pretty soon, I would hope that people... You know, there would be some way of looking at what the Olympic Council of Ireland has been doing, you know, for many, many years in relation to how it conducts its business. Because what you don't get from the Olympic Council of Ireland is is a huge amount of transparency. I mean, I remember 20 years ago when I was trying to find things out. The reason why I was able to discover some of the things that were going on was because there were some people on the Olympic Council of Ireland who were really concerned. I mean, I remember the Brendan O'Connor from from, uh, uh, Kildare, who was on the Olympic Council, and uh, David Balberni, and they were really kind of concerned, and eventually they kind of challenged Pat Hickey. And, of course, they were the ones who lost, because politically, Pat Hickey has always been very astute, and he knows how to get elected. He knows how to gather support around him. But the kind of stuff that I saw at that time and that I unearthed, I mean, I thought it was quite serious. You know, that I remember the sports minister at the time, you know, um, um, uh, Bernard Allen, mm. Cork, I think, um, was sports minister. And he and his family were treated to a kind of a holiday by the Olympic Council of Ireland. And it was Bernard Allen and his family, like kids, being paid for by the Olympic Council of Ireland. And the Olympic Council of Ireland is being you know, funded by taxpayers. And I'm thinking, well, do taxpayers want to pay money so that a minister and his kids can have a free trip? And, I, I, and I, my question, the very first line of that article, which I wrote, which basically said, Pat Hickey should resign, and that was 20 years ago. The first, the first line of that piece said, is there anybody out there who cares? And at the time, there were a few. Uh, um, but ultimately, there, there weren't enough, and people in a general sense didn't care. And now we've got ourselves into a situation that 
It's very embarrassing for the Olympic Council of Ireland, this ticket scandal. It's also quite embarrassing for Ireland as a country. And it shouldn't deflect once in tiller of attention away from the gold, the, the silver medalists that we have. You know, Murphy. Well, uh, I think that that's a great point and something that we've had even yesterday. Natalia Coyle coming seventh in the modern pentathlon and uh, Rob Heffernan in the walking. Like it is a shame it's been taken from them. Look, David, I'm afraid I have to leave it there for the moment. But um, I want to thank you for coming on the line. And I think at least you can be assured that people do care now. And it'll be very interesting to see how events unfold um, in the next few weeks. So thank you for taking our call. Thank you. Okay, and that's David Walsh, Chief Sports Writer with the Sunday Times. Um, John Lee from the Irish Daily Mail is with me in studio now. John, it is such a shame that this is taking the shine off the um, incredible achievements, even just yesterday, of our Irish athletes. Natalia Coyle was just astonishing in this modern pentathlon, show jumping, running and shooting, extraordinary events, and she did so well in them. Yes, um, complicated looking event for me, who's more of a football fan. Unfortunately, I'm one of those that lost um, a lot of faith in the in the Olympics a long time ago. <clears throat> um, probably Ben Johnson finished it for me. That's eighty eight, I think. I, I think half the part of the problem is that we, we we periodically focus attention on the Olympics, and every four years, obviously, and we don't really look at the workings of some of the, these committees, these sporting committees that are are running the show year round, and we thank them for the for them for doing that for us. But there doesn't seem to be much focus on how they do their business. And, and Pat Hickey has fiercely defended the independence of the Olympic Council from political interference over the years. He had a particular... Successfully re- so. Yeah. Tell me, remind us of the Jim McDade row. I, I, I vaguely remember the Bernard Allen one there now. So he's he's um, he's been liaising with um, high level Irish politicians for quite a while and some international too. The, the Jim McDade one, I, I think I was at the Sunday Times at the time. Um, it, there was some kind of row over um, over accreditation for John Tracy, uh, a very well-known athlete at the time. And we were we were kind of reliant somewhat on Pat Hickey's account of uh, of what happened there. That um, he claimed, he claimed, and we uh, and uh, Jim McDade didn't get uh, this was this was revisited again recently, and Jim McDade, uh, who is out of politics, didn't respond to some of this. So I hasten to I hasten to add that this is Pat Hickey's account of what um, happened. He claimed that John Tracy was um, his accreditation. There was an effort to stop it by Jim McDade for whatever reason at the two thousand at the two thousand Olympics, and. Um, Jim McDade and Pat Hickey clashed over that incident. John Tracy ultimately was given accreditation and attended the Olympics. Um, Then it appeared that Jim McDade wanted to settle this score and somehow assist in removing Pat Hickey from the from the presidency of the uh, in the OCI the IOC the I- OCI uh, Richard Burroughs who was um, who was a very well known executive at the time and still is to a degree he ultimately came to um, a very high profile during the, our financial crash when he was the, the governor of the Bank of Ireland uh, when it um, <laughs> got a few bob off the state. Um, Essentially, they stood Burroughs. The government um, backed Richard Burroughs against Hickey. Hickey won. Simple as that. Was, I think the vote came down to 27-10. Maybe then and maybe now, uh, politicians, you know, paid politicians, professional politicians underestimate Pat Hickey's 
political skills. That's his arena. That's where he has worked all his life. And what and do you think? What do you think of that point of principle that? Uh, as Hickey would argue, the OCI is a separate body. The Olympics is famously apolitical. And it should be, there should be a clear you know, red line between the Olympic Council and politicians. Or, as David Walsh has argued, when you're getting taxpayers' money, you have to be accountable to the taxpayer end of. And Shane Ross is, is pushing that line now as well. Our current sports minister, there's 1.7 million being given to, um, being given to the uh, OCI over the last four years the the Olympics it was fine it being free of political interference 30-40 years ago when it was a smaller operation now it's a multi-billion euro um, monster and clearly it's not working out too well that these sporting bodies are being left to their own devices because two Irish people are in jail at the moment in Brazil whatever we think um, may happen in the judicial process there that is not a good thing and it hasn't worked out with without significant political guidance John Lee I have to take a break Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108 Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the Olympics this morning. John Lee from the Irish Daily Mail is in studio with me. Now, John, you were at the press conference when uh, this inquiry that Shane Ross wants to conduct was launched. What is the form of the inquiry and do you think it's going to be effective? Well, it's non-statutory, which means it isn't necessarily based on any legislation. There are no firm rules um, around it. It would strike me as facing a, a bit of a problem because uh, um, the, it's Hamlet without the prince in some ways because I we did ask this question at the press conference yesterday how are we going to communicate with Pat Hickey? We don't know how long he's going to be incarcerated for. He is the central figure here obviously. There wasn't really a, a good answer to that question. Similarly, um, Kevin Mallon, another man in, in custody in Brazil, we don't know how long he's going to be there. How will we communicate? There's two people we can't communicate with. Then, for all the the, the commitments to cooperate to cooperate with this, we know from past inquiries suddenly commercial interests will come into play. They'll come across. Some people may come across legal impediments, and there isn't any power there to compel witnesses or compel anyone to supply documents. So it's it's we must face it with a bit of pessimism. And we can imagine what Shane Ross would say about it if he was in opposition. I think. Yeah, Shane Ross has, has tried. Let's give him that. You know, he may not his 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 office may not have much power to um to move on these sporting uh, fiefdoms, but he at least he has tried, and he's trying his best. And I don't doubt he'll keep pushing as be- as best he can. Okay, well then, look, we'll give it a shot, see how it goes. We might find out something. Um, John Lee from the Irish Daily Mail, <coughs> thanks a million for coming in this morning. Now, I have to admit personally, I was a bit concerned when I was watching Brazilian justice unfold. Kevin Mallon was arrested on August fifth. And his lawyers had to go to court um, with a habeas corpus writ uh, to try and get access to him. Um, Pat Hickey's arrest was televised. And then US swimmers Gunnar Betts and Jack Conger were removed from a flight home as police checked their teammates Ryan Lochte's story that he had been mugged at gunpoint. Now, it might turn out all right in the end, but I spoke to James Cooper yesterday. He's a professor at the Californian Western School of Law and has 20 years experience working for reform of South American criminal law. And I asked him if we can have confidence in the Brazilian police. Well, absolutely. Uh, now, uh, when it comes to foreigners, I, when I say absolutely, then it's absolute. And, and that's the thing, uh, particularly with respect to uh, what's been happening with the U.S. swimmers. Uh, most of the time, when <clears throat> normal karaoke, that is the people who live uh, in Rio de Janeiro, 
um, call the police. Uh, the police don't come, or if they come, they don't investigate. Uh, but when a foreigner is involved, uh, and particularly in, 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 in these kinds of these two high-profile cases, the U.S. swimmers and uh, Mr. Uh, Hickey, um, you see the, the police not only acting really fast, but the, uh, there's a lot of political pressure for them to do so. So this is what uh, upset a lot of the, uh, the locals in Brazil, because, you know, if they call the police, nobody comes out, nobody cares. Um, but when, uh, when uh, foreigners are involved, uh, in the case of the U.S. swimmers, uh, as alleged victims, then they, you know, they, don't, they, they pull out all the stops to actually investigate. There are police who are um, uh, corrupt. There are police who are underpaid, and that's why uh, corruption is so rampant. Um, the, repeatedly, uh, the police have, uh, have been uh, impugned by, by their behavior in terms of extrajudicial killings. Many of them are, are paid um, under the table by, by vendors, by street retailers, uh, to um, uh, assassinate uh, street children who have been uh, stealing from them. Um, to assassinate? Involved, the police have been involved in extrajudicial killings, yeah. That's awful. This happens all across Latin America. Uh, and because they're so poorly paid, uh, they're open to this. In fact, and I don't want to make it sound like it happens all the time. These are, these are, are rare situations. Uh, but it has happened. The Brazilian legal system uh, is, is notoriously slow, um, open to political influence. Um, uh, and uh, notwithstanding that, uh, there are oral trials. There is due process. There is uh, the ability to hear the evidence and the charges that uh, you are uh, being accused of. Um, and uh, there is a presumption of innocence. So they've got uh, a lot of the trappings, at least on paper, uh, through their, their myriad laws uh, that, that do exist on the books. Um, but sometimes, uh, or I should say even oftentimes, these things are not enforced. And for any legal system to be a truly functioning legal system, you need norms, um, rules uh, that are based on those norms, and then institutions that can enforce those rules. And, you know, the Brazilian Constitution is a, is a huge document. Uh, uh, the Brazilian laws, including environmental laws, uh, tax laws, are incredibly intricate and complex. Whether they're enforced or not is a whole different issue. Now, just on those three cases, um, if we take Pat Hickey's first, what I thought was astonishing was the fact that his arrest was televised, which was particularly unfortunate when he answered his hotel room naked. Um, now, the story given by the journalists who were in a position to, um, to ha- take that footage was that, oh, their journalists acted on intuition and they just put two and two together and very cleverly just accidentally happened to be there when the arrest was being made. Would there be a history of police and media working together um, or is it plausible that that was entirely the very clever work of a particularly diligent journalist? Mm, I, I think that uh, uh, in this case uh, there was uh, some sort of collaboration between the police and the media. I've <clears throat> been a member of the media in Brazil uh, some 20 odd years ago and have gone on police raids and have filmed um, defendants long before they were charged. So this is this is common practice, and then the other- um, an ongoing actual relationship, uh, what are called yellow journalists um, or the tabloid journalists, um, traditionally have relations with the police. Uh, they work with each other, uh, um, and uh, even very uh, acclaimed shows like Aqui Agora, Here and Now, uh, which has played for decades in in, in Brazil. Um, you sometimes see journalists uh, uh, using themselves as as hostages. Uh, and trading for for kids in hostage situations, so there isn't a, a culture where 
the media uh, and uh, the, the police authorities uh, do work hand in hand. That's not always the case. Oftentimes, um, they can be a loggerheads. Uh, but I think you know it's, it's incredibly uh, conspicuous and uh, suspicious that the media were were there when Mr. Hickey was arrested. And then the other aspect was the press conference that was held the next day. You had the police behind the desk, and then almost on display were Mr. Hickey's passport, his return ticket back to Ireland, and his um, IOC accreditation. You know, almost like spoils of their um, victory. Um, would that kind of ostentatious display be normal too? Would would they always have those press conferences? Not always, but in high-profile cases, absolutely. You'll see uh, sometimes the takedowns of, of uh, uh, drug dealers in the favelas of shanty towns that ring uh, Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo. Oftentimes when uh, these uh, drug dealers, uh, or alleged drug dealers, I should say, are caught, um, even even before there's been a trial, they lay out all the evidence, and including a logo of whatever police brigade it was that caught them. Mm. What I thought was a bit more sinister was Kevin Mallon. He was the first Irishman arrested on August 5th and apparently caught in the act, they say, of selling these Olympic tickets um, at, at the incorrect prices. But he hasn't been seen since. He's been held while all this has been investigated. And as far as we know up to this point, his own lawyers haven't been able to see him and have gone to the court with a habeas corpus writ. Would that be normal? It seems a bit sinister to me that someone can just be arrested and that's it. They're gone. Well, you know, this this happens right across Latin America. Um, Issues of preventive detention, for example. Uh, Brazil, unfortunately, uh, leads uh, Latin America in terms of uh, cases of preventive detention. This is where you can put folks in for uh, uh, jail before uh, they've even been uh, charged uh, or while the investigation is going on and uh, under the guise of it uh, uh, could be a crime against the national economy or to guarantee public order. And that notion of in uh, Brazilian justice of what is public order, that stipulation uh, is, is incredibly flexible. Now, having said that, um, you've got to understand the Brazilian authorities. They take this stuff super seriously. They have been on the defensive uh, since they've been awarded the uh, the games, really, and uh, you know the endless media stories of how the Olympic Village wasn't ready, the Australian team left because the uh, the showers there was a leaky, you know, the, there was water near an electrical outlet, and, and, and or 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 the, the toxic waste and the superbugs that exist are in in the uh, the uh, waters around uh, Rio and around the games where uh, the various boaters boaters uh, and the Olympians will have to. Uh, 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 compete, or or the uh, the various uh, robberies, um, the corruption scandals that have hit uh, the president. She's under in the midst of an impeachment uh, proceeding. Um, the, the Petrobras scandal. These folks have been just just hammered. And so when you get you know Northerners or Westerners, however you want to say, people from the industrialized North, whether it's Ireland or the United States. Um, uh, either uh, impugning the uh, Brazilian justice system or uh, taking advantage or unjustly enriching themselves, and allegedly in the case of, of Mr. Hickey and his co-conspirators, um, they got to take this stuff seriously. The Brazilians are no different than the Irish or the Americans or anybody else. They're fiercely nationalistic. Sovereignty matters. Brazil, unfortunately, suffers from uh, chronic um, poverty, um, notwithstanding the gains made under uh, the former president, Lula, uh, and uh, personal violence, uh, acts of violence, um, street crime, uh, is rampant as well. That's been the, the narrative that has been endlessly uh, flaunted by the international media. These people weren't ready for it. There would be protests. There would be 
the subways weren't ready, the Olympic Village wasn't ready. You can understand why the Brazilian authorities are taking this stuff seriously. And do you think that's why they reacted um, so harshly to Ryan Lochte's claim that he had been held up at some point and that they went to the judge and got those other swimmers taken off the plane? You know, that they were absolutely determined to make it clear that this incident had never occurred and actually was the swimmers themselves had committed a crime? Well, let's put it into context. I'm not so sure, Sarah, with all due respect, they acted harshly. Um, it is a, uh, a sovereign right to, uh, under the, both the territorial principle uh, and the uh, protective uh, personality uh, principle of jurisdiction uh, to uh, investigate uh, crimes that occur on your territory, uh, especially ones that affect uh, your national pride or can impugn your, your, your very society, like uh, the, the uh, false claims we're learning that uh, the U.S. swimmers uh, uh, have provided both to the police and publicly. And it's a crime, uh, whether it's the vandalism, uh, the public urination, uh, or most importantly, the uh, filing of a false uh, uh, police report, which is a crime in most countries. Uh, this is that's serious stuff. When we say harshly, uh, they weren't gunned down <laughs> like uh, like street kids are uh, rarely, but uh, so harshly. Yes, there's an, uh, an up to three year um, prison sentence uh, that comes with the crime of, uh, of making a false uh, 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 police report. But remember. Part of this also was that it had gone to the public. So the other two, you know, they just had to be interviewed. And they, the, the two of the swimmers uh, were delayed uh, with respect to their departure by 24 hours. That's not a big deal. So I'm not sure I would use the word, word harshly. What I would say uh, about this is because um, Mr. Lochte actually went um, to Twitter, did some interviews on NBC and other major mass media uh, about this, that became the crime, to falsely um, accuse uh, the police, and because the, the the allegations were that the police were involved or people dressed up as police, that's a serious, serious issue. Now, generally, and the judge came out yesterday in the New York Times, the judge who's investigating this, and, and that's the other piece of the puzzle. It's a judge that does the investigation, not a public prosecutor, because this is a civil law tradition, not a common law tradition with respect um, to uh, to how the criminal system works. It's, it's more inquisitorial than it is uh, adversarial, something that we'd be used to uh, in Ireland or, or, or North America. Now, um, the judge actually came out and said, look, there's only going to be a, f- a fine. In fact, the, the, third, uh, the fourth swimmer, Mr. Fagan, I believe, uh, has agreed to pay uh, up to, an, I think it's almost $11,000 um, uh, for a fine uh, at, and, uh, as a charitable donation. And as soon as he does that, he'll get his passport back. Uh, these people are not going to go to jail. These are, you mm. know, these are um, um, uh, coddled uh, uh, Olympic athletes who unfortunately uh, were, were drunk and out at 4 o'clock in the morning in the midst of a euphoric uh, victory lap uh, around Rio. And having uh, been in Rio and having uh, worked in Rio, l- let me say that nothing good happens to single guys at 4 o'clock in the morning in Rio when they're drunk. <laughs> And, you know, I can understand how they got involved in the initial scrape. But what on earth do you think was going on in Ryan Lochte's head to get up the next morning and go around and make all these claims about being held up? Well, you know, keep in mind, uh, uh, this, he's 32 years old. He's not a kid. He's not a kid. Um, and he's, he's been through this routine before in, in the Olympics and having won. Uh, but there's a, uh, this isn't my area, but there's a, there's a but I, I, I've, I've helped uh, professional athletes before with some of their legal issues. Um, they are uh, coddled from and, 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 and left in a permanent state of adolescence uh, um, because they're so great at their whatever athletic uh, prowess that they might, 
might have. Um, and we don't hold them to the same uh, responsibility. In the States, you're seeing this uh, actually through Twitter uh, being used as an example of so-called white privilege that had it been uh, um, athletes of color from the United States or anywhere else, um, that uh, the, uh, uh, the, the issue of, 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 uh, of lying w- would be much more uh, severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're seeing people coming to their defense because they're Olympians and they're, uh, you know, this kind of frat boy mentality. It's not Daytona Beach. It's not spring break. It's not, uh, for your view, uh, listeners, it's not going down to Ibiza for a, a good laugh. Um, when, you say, when you accuse... <laughs> Uh, 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 folks of acting as police and, and cocking a gun against someone's head. That's, and this is an issue of national pride. I think we go beyond issues of law here, Sarah, mm. and we have to understand that Brazil is incredibly nationalistic. Now, there's an inter- two interesting points that have not come out, I think, as, as well as they should have on this. Uh, the first is um, the service officers, the, the security officers, I should say, were part-time. They were regular jobs were prison guards, so they're sworn peace officers, Okay. Um, they actually were police, uh, not working in the function of the police, their official capacity, but working part-time because, again, police aren't paid a great deal in Brazil. Uh, so actually the police are involved uh, in this, uh, uh, albeit um, in a, uh, outside their, their, their job. The second piece is they allegedly paid some $20, I can't, I can't remember how many, 100 real, reis, uh, which is the Brazilian currency, uh, to make this problem go away. Um, the idea that you'd be paying an expedited fine to anybody in Brazil and they would ever get to the people that it's supposed to get to, like the owner of the gas station, is ludicrous. The other, the other piece of it is when you're robbed in Brazil, they don't take your wallet, take the money out and give you back the wallet generally. They take your shoes, they take your cell phone, they take your keys, they take your wallet. Um, you're lucky they don't take your life. Um, these kids uh, came back and there's a footage showing that they had um, <clears throat> their cell phones, their, wa- uh, their wallets, uh, uh, with them and were goofing around. The, the thought that they could get away with this with, in, a, in an era of social media, of which they have benefited and from which they have benefited and, and used, um, like Ryan uh, Lochte in, in terms of uh, you know his, his Twitter accounts and so forth. Uh, this is ridiculous. These kids are just boneheads. Okay, and then finally, with respect to uh, Patrick and Kevin Mallon, who are both in custody. Would you be confident that there there will be due process and that they will be treated properly? Absolutely. The world's spotlight is on them. You will see them get far better justice than Brazilians would get, or at least access to justice. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that he was taken, that Mr. he was taken to the hospital, uh, the fact that uh, the media are following them around, um, you will see incredible uh, attention to detail. I only wish that uh, the Brazilians who are uh, either victims of crimes or the alleged perpetrators should have, have the same uh, care uh, and uh, professionalism um, uh, that uh, the two Irishmen are, 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 are dealing with. And that was James Cooper, professor at the Californian Western School of Law. Now, after the break, I'll be talking to Andrew Zimbalist. He's an economist and author of Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympic Games and the World Cup. And we'll be talking about hosting the Games. That's after this. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. 
and welcome back to Talking Point this morning. And we're talking about the Olympics this morning and we often hear about the huge cost of cities hosting the Olympics. And presumably cities must want to host them because they think it will bring real economic benefits in the short and long term. Now, Andrew Zimbalist is an economist at Smith College, Massachusetts, and he's author of Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympic Games and the World Cup. I spoke to him yesterday and I asked him to describe the economics of a city hosting the Games. The the fundamental problem is that the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, is a monopoly. It's a global monopoly, and because it's global, it doesn't have any national regulatory bodies telling it what it can do and it can't do. So it has a lot of market power, and it takes advantage of that by every four years for the Summer Olympics and every four years for the Winter Olympics – hosting an auction amongst the cities of the world, asking them to bid against each other to convince the IOC that that they, as a city, are, are the most worthy hosts of the honor of hosting the Olympic Games. And the way the cities historically have done that is by proposing more elaborate venues uh, and more connections amongst the venues and the and the clusters of, of uh, Olympic activity. Um, and uh, so what happens over time is that the price goes higher and higher. So we're at a point right now where Rio this year is spending somewhere on the order of $20 billion to host the Games, and they'll receive something on the order of $3 billion in revenue. There's obviously a deficit there, around $17 billion. That's not a good financial investment. Uh, now, the IOC will claim that there are long-term benefits because there's exposure on, on international television, and that exposure will make people want to travel to your country, increasing tourism, and businesses will want to do business with your city. Uh, trade and foreign investment will increase. They also claim that there'll be an increase in physical fitness of of the population as they become more enamored with uh, physical uh, well-being. Now, the the economic evidence, the data, doesn't suggest that any of these long-term benefits are forthcoming. So the country, at the end of the day, is left with this, this deficit. I might add that although... $20 $20 billion is the cost in terms of the amount of checks that they write, the amount that they actually pay out in cash. There are other expenses as well that don't get calculated in that $20 billion. For instance, the Brazilian government has made land grants to private developers who and construction companies that are building some of the Olympic venues. They've also provided low-interest, below-market loans to these companies, and they provide tax abatements to the companies. Uh, there are also requirements that the IOC has about not taxing certain kinds of Olympic activities. So fiscal revenues tend to go down when you host the Olympics. And then there's the use of scarce urban real estate. Uh, when when you're uh, taking land that could have better uses and you're, you're putting a velodrome there or some other athletic facility that will have very little use going forward, uh, you're not in, you're not using your land in, in the best possible way, mm-hmm. and along with that comes environmental degradation. In Rio, they they built a golf course which is not needed in Rio. Golf is not a popular sport there, and they have two golf courses already that are not very you um, not used very often uh, by the local population. They built a golf course in 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 an environmental reserve uh, where there are wetlands that are supposed to be protected. Uh, there were initial challenges to the use of that golf course, but uh, the, the government 
uh, said basically we're not going to pay attention to the, the, the court decisions in this case, and we're going to go ahead and build a golf course. Now they have a golf course that, in order to maintain, will require enormous amounts of water for irrigation, and Brazil and, and Rio in particular has, has a water scarcity. So there are all sorts of problems mm-hmm. like that, that that go along with the Olympics. And then there's the social problem, which is that they had to evict over 77,000 favelados, or people who live in, in the favelas or shanty towns, in order to make room for the Olympic constructions. So given all that, who is driving the bids um, from the cities? Why would any city actually want this? Well, first of all, fewer and fewer cities do want it. We, we, we know, for instance, that for the 2022 Winter Olympics that was uh, awarded to Beijing in 2015, that in the year and a half before the Games were awarded to Beijing, there were five different European cities that had been involved in the bid that dropped out because there were either popular referendums or local city councils decided that it was not economically worthwhile. In the case of the 2024 Summer Olympic bidding, uh, South Africa dropped out, Toronto dropped out, Boston dropped out, Hamburg dropped out, and May, excuse me, and Rome might drop out because the new mayor of Rome is not not interested in hosting the Olympics. She thinks it's a bad economic investment. But in those cases where there are bids and the bids go forward, more often than not, it's because a group of local executives, probably uh, most likely from the construction sector, are pushing the bid. Construction companies tend to be the largest employer in, in a local urban economy, and they have an enormous amount of political weight and political connections that they can throw around. And they go to the mayor, they go to the city council and say, we, we want this to be done. And usually they line up some investment bankers who are going to float the loans to finance the construction, uh, some lawyers who work for them, maybe some insurance companies. They'll all come together and, and they'll lobby for it to happen. And, and that more often than not is is the process that uh, I'm sha- validates, yeah, I'm shaking my head. Yeah, I'm shaking yeah. my head listening to that. You know, when you can just imagine that little golden circle of people who will personally make money out of it, but the, yes. the citizens of yeah. the city themselves won't. But what about revenues then? Surely when you've got, um, even for television rights and ticket sales and advertising, you know, all those revenue streams, where does that go? Well, the, the the largest revenue stream is from the international television contracts. And, of course, the one from NBC in the United States is the largest, but there's also CBC in Canada, and there's also networks around the world that, that pay the IOC money for the right to broadcast the Olympics. The IOC these days shares about 25% of that revenue with the host city, and, right. and the IOC keeps the remainder for itself. The IOC then distributes a good portion of that to the international sports federations and to the national Olympic committees. But the host city only gets 25% of that. The host city only gets 50% of international sponsorship money. Uh, the host city gets to keep its ticketing revenue. In the case of Brazil, that's about $300 million. When you add up all of the media revenue and the sponsorship revenue and the ticket revenue that, that Rio will get, it's somewhere on the order of $3 billion. Again, that, that doesn't hold a candle up against $20 billion dollars of costs. Now, the two great exceptions apparently to this were Los Angeles in 84 and Barcelona in 1992. And it's yeah. said that they actually managed to turn a profit from it. What did they do differently? Well, Barcelona didn't turn a, a, a profit in cash flow. What Barcelona did was to take a city that was underappreciated as a tourist venue um, and uh, and 
to take advantage of its 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 natural its natural situation, which is that they have a wonderful climate, they have beautiful location, they have gorgeous architecture and, and rich rich culture and history, uh, but it was underappreciated, and they were able to take advantage of the exposure that they got from the Olympic Games. But the reason why it worked in Barcelona was because they planned it all out beforehand. Uh, they, after Franco passed away in 1975 and they introduced democracy in the country, they planned a restructuring of the city based upon a new vision that would remove a warehousing and manufacturing district that was on the sea, remove it to someplace else, and open the city to the sea. And along with that, there was some trans- transportation route reconfiguration. And there was a plan in place for the city prior to the decision to go ahead and bid for the games. So when they decided to bid for the games, they fit the games, the IOC's requirements, into the plan that they already made. If if you use your investments for the Olympics to promote an, an existing plan, then it can work out. But the typical sequence is that there is no new vision, there is no plan for the city, there's simply an accommodation and a contortion of the city in order to accommodate the IOC's many demands. So that's primarily, there's some other things going on in Barcelona that were supportive also, but that's primarily what happened there. <clears throat> With Los Angeles, what happened in, in uh, 1984 is that nobody wanted to bid to host the Olympics because the, the previous three Summer Olympics in Mexico City, Munich, and, and, and Montreal had all been disastrous in their own ways. Nobody wanted to bid. Los Angeles stepped forward and said, we'll bid, but we have certain conditions. And the IOC, because they couldn't put Los Angeles up against some other bidder, uh, the IOC had to go along with Los Angeles conditions, which were number one, and this is the only time this has happened. Los Angeles said to the IOC, we're, we refuse to financially backstop the game, so we're not going to cover any losses that we might experience. The IOC had no choice, and they said, okay, you don't have to financially backstop the games. Second thing they said is we want to use the dormitories at UCLA and USC two universities in Los Angeles. We want to use the student dormitories for the Olympic Village. We don't want to build an Olympic Village. IOC said okay. And the third thing they said is we want to be able to use the Olympic Stadium from 1932, uh, which is called the Los Angeles Coliseum. Uh, we want to use that for our Olympic Stadium. We, want, we don't want to build a new one. And, and the, the IOC once again said okay. So Los Angeles, w- with those conditions and with the fact that this is a large urban, it's the second largest city in the United States, they already had a bunch of stadiums for their collegiate and their and their professional sports teams. They hardly had to build anything. So when you're in that situation and you have the unique uh, the unique condition that they're not going to finance any losses, they were able to actually turn a very small surplus or a modest surplus of two hundred and fifteen million dollars. Uh, so if you have a situation where the city is developed and it has not only the venues already in place, but it has the transportation, the communications, the hospitality, and the sanitation infrastructure already in place, and they, therefore they have to spend very little, in that circumstance it's possible to pull off the Olympics in a financially reasonable way. And that's what happened in Los Angeles. Since the Olympics really started up again in the late 19th century, people have been arguing that it should just stay in one place. And the obvious place is Greece. Um, Can you tell me about the arguments in favor of that? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it makes a lot of sense to put it in one place. Um, When when the modern Olympics began in 1896, we, we didn't have international telecommunications the way we have it now. You couldn't, you couldn't sit in your bedroom in, in, in Leeds 
or sit in your bedroom in Dublin and, and watch the games that were happening in Rio. Uh, so you, you wanted to move the Olympics around to enable people around the world to experience the Olympics. They don't have to move them around to experience it anymore. Um, so it, it makes the most sense to, to pick out one venue, maybe one or two or three venues, like Los Angeles, which already has all of the, the, the sports venues and already has all of the, the, the basic infrastructure, so that they don't have to waste billions of dollars to do it. And you don't have to rebuild the, the whole Olympic Shangri-La every four years, which is not only financially wasteful, it's a waste, it's a waste of, of the environment and materials. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's quite sensible to think about doing it in one place. It wouldn't be particularly beneficial to that city uh, because th- there's, there's really no profit to be earned. And, and in fact, the operational costs are, are pretty high these days. The security cost is over $2 billion. So there's no great benefit to to the city that hosts, uh, and it wouldn't be if, if it were you know if it were Los Angeles. This wouldn't be uh, U.S. or American chauvinism that was promoting it. It would simply be from the standpoint of the world economy, it makes the most sense to do it there. Now, I don't I don't particularly favor Greece. Greece would be or Athens would be nice symbolically, and Christine Lagarde of the IMF likes the idea because she thinks that it would maybe relieve some of the financial burden on, on Athens and Greece. But I don't think. Would Greece does not have a professional sports infrastructure and a collegiate sports infrastructure that makes them have these venues? They would have to build the venues. The venues from 2004 have virtually all gone to seed. They'd have to build the venues. It would cost billions of dollars. Greece doesn't have the money for that. And once the venues were built, they don't have the domestic sports infrastructure to support those venues. The venues would go unused for the four years in between the Olympic events, which are 17 days every four years. But that idea Uh, in principle of having it in one place, you know, if so many people are in favor of that... Who's against it? I presume the International well, the Olympic IOC is against Committee. It. The IOC laughs at people when, when they suggest it. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the IOC, the people who are running the IOC are in a situation where they have an enormous amount of power. And why would they give that up? A lot of that power comes from the fact that they get world cities to compete against each other. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so it, it, the real trick here is no matter how good the idea is, as long as the IOC has the power and nobody can regulate the IOC, we're not going to get anything done unless the cities of the world continue to do what they're doing and saying, gee, we're not interested. This is a bad economic bargain. We're not interested in playing your game. Or the corporate sponsors get together and they say, the reason why we put out hundreds of millions of dollars as corporate sponsors uh, every four years is because we think it helps our brand. It, it, it's because we associate with the Olympics, and the Olympics used to have a good name. But if the Olympics has a bad name, if the IOC ruins its reputation, then the corporations don't benefit anymore. So if the, those corporations come together and they say to the IOC, look, this isn't working anymore, either clean up your act or we're not going to sponsor you, that would be another route to, to changing all this. But it takes more than a good idea to bring about effective political and economic change. It sure does. I was reading um, when that 1896 Olympics was closing, King George of Greece was pleading that uh, the Olympics remain in Greece. But Pierre de Coubertin, the French intellectual who yes. started the Olympic movement, he said he pretended not to understand the king. And uh, a wag suggested the IOC continues to play dumb and pretend not to understand <laughs> what's really going on. Um, yeah, so here there. we are, 120 years later and we're no more enlightened.
And that was Andrew Zimbalist, economist and author of Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympic Games and World Cup. And thanks to our mystery texter who was complaining at the beginning of the show that we were banging on about the Olympics again. But we've turned him around and he says, actually, it's great. And I should be on air every day. Thank you, mystery texter. Send us your name. We do have your number, but we won't call you. Well, look, on the line now is uh, Kenny Egan. Of course, he's the boxer who won a silver medal at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing and is now a Fine Gael County Councillor in Clondalkin. His own final back then was not without controversy, with the NBC announcers concurring that the judges hadn't credited Kenny with several punches that would have given him the lead and the gold medal, which probably gave him a good insight into how Michael Conlon felt this time. Good morning, Kenny. Um, how are you? How did you feel at the time and how do you feel now watching um, the, the boxing at the Olympics? Yeah, it's, it's been a long time since I was in the, in the you know, in Olympic ring. Um, but it does bring back the memories of, of, of almost, almost, you know, winning that gold medal. But it's 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 a memory now to me, you know. If I was offered a silver medal at the start of the game, I would have took my both hands, as I said before. But um, for me, I think my scoring was different to Michael's because I think when I was fighting in the Olympic final, I probably come down to human error with the judges because the point scoring system was different to Michael's. Um, in a an arena of fifteen, sixteen thousand people screaming and shouting, you know, the judges can make mistakes by hitting the red button instead of the blue. And that can happen. So I think it was it was it was human error. But uh, for Michael Conlon, it was definitely a robbery. Um, 100%. And does does that spoil the experience for you, or are you still able to watch? You know, say Natalia Coyle um, yesterday, and Rob Heffernan and Thomas Barr, and you know, really enjoy it. To be honest with you, these whole Olympic games, you know, as a spectator. Now I watched London as well, which was it was ran very very well, and the score was. Was, was fairly fair to a degree, but as as a whole, the Olympic Games has lost its um, just a, it's lost its shine. You know, it's 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 just been bad news from start to finish, uh, and not only for Ireland but just across the board. And I think you know your previous speaker there that was, was talking about the, the the scandal and the and the money making enterprise that it is, and the IOC having the power they have. Is it is it worthwhile this whole Olympic movement? You know. Yeah, isn't it a shame that it's come to that and someone like yourself who took part in it and who did well in it is asking yourself those questions? Like, it is, because I, I remember being as a young lad and I watched my crew win his gold medal and I wanted to get into boxing and, and try and, you know, become an Olympian. And that's all I wanted was to become the Olympian. And then when I qualified, obviously, or then I wanted to try and win a medal, which, which thank God I did. But for the lads that put in just as much work as me, like Michael Conlon, who worked so hard since London, Four years of his life he gave to the sport to go out then and be robbed blindly by five people that know I feel know nothing about boxing are sitting around the, the ring and are told I'm sure to say look you're picking the Russian in this fight he has to win at all costs that's not fair that's not the spirit of the Olympic movement that's that's not that's not right well look Ken I'm afraid I have to leave it there for this morning but I think a lot of people are asking those questions and there's going to be a lot of soul searching uh, when the dust settles on this particular row so thanks for taking our call and thanks to all our guests the interviews with James Cooper and Andrew Zimbalist will be on Newstalk.com Marion Kennedy was in sound you've been produced Bobby Kerr is up next and thank you for listening thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.